Hello and welcome to Ominous Whispers, Season 1, Episode 2. My name is Vincent Rivera, and across the table is Christian Haskell. This show contains adult content, and listener's discretion is advised. In this show, we will discuss true crime stories, true paranormal stories, and just about anything creepy. From my own accounts, research, and listener submissions, these are the stories that will give anyone goosebumps. The primary topic of this podcast will cover the BTK killer, his life, his murders, and his apprehension. Known as the BTK killer, Dennis Rader murdered 10 people in the Wichita, Kansas area from 1974 to 1991 often leaving clues to taunt authorities. Born in 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas, Dennis Rader went on to live a double life, devoted family and company man day by day. He also terrorized the Wichita, Kansas area as the quote-unquote BTK killer for bind, torture, kill. With 10 murders and brazen correspondence with authorities between 1974 and 1991, Raider's alter ego resurfaced in 2004, but his penchant for leaving clues led to his arrest and life imprisonment for the following year. Raider was born on March 9, 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas and grew up in Wichita. The oldest of four sons, he enjoyed a seemingly normal childhood, reportedly masking such disturbing behavior as hanging stray animals. Raider dropped out of college and joined the U.S. Air Force in the mid-1960s. After returning to Wichita, he married his wife Paula in 1971 and worked as an outdoor supply company for about a year. In 1974, he began a lengthy stint as an employee of ADT Security Services. On January 15, 1974, Raider strangled to death four members of the Otero family in their Wichita home parents of Joseph and Julie, their two children, Josephine and Joseph Jr., before leaving with a watch and a radio. Strangulation and souvenir taking would become part of his modus operandi or pattern of behavior. He also left semen at the scene and later said that he derived sexual pleasure from killing. The Otero's 15-year-old son, Charlie, came home later that day and discovered the bodies. Raider struck again a few months later. On April 4th, 1974, he waited in the apartment of a young woman named Catherine Bright before stabbing and strangling her when she returned home. Raider also twice shot her brother, Kevin, though he survived. Kevin later described Raider as an average-sized guy, bushy mustache, psychotic eyes, according to a Time magazine article. In October 1974, Raider placed a letter in public library book in which he took responsibility for killing the Oteros. The letter ended up with a local newspaper and the poorly written note gave authorities some idea of who they were dealing with. Raider wrote, and I quote, It is hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang-up. End quote. He warned that he would strike again, noting 
the code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. The initials stuck, and the murderer came to be known by variations of the BTK killer moniker, or simply BTK. Raider's next known crimes occurred in 1977. In March of that year, he tied up and strangled Shirley Vian after locking her children in the bathroom. In December, he strangled Nancy Fox in her home and then called the police to report the homicide. Shortly afterward, in January 1978, Raider sent a poem to a local newspaper about the Vian killing. Several weeks later, he sent a letter to a local television station stating that he was responsible for killing Vian. He also made allusions to several other notorious killers, including Ted Bundy and David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam. Despite his cat-and-mouse game with authorities, Raiders was able to keep the lid on a secret, murderous life. Reportedly an attentive husband, he and his wife had a son in 1975 and a daughter in 1978. The next year, Raider graduated from Wichita State University with a degree in administration of justice. Still, he continued to taunt the authorities and appeared to be poised to strike again. In April 1979, Raider waited at an elderly woman's home, but left before she returned. He sent her a letter to let her know that BTK had been there. In an effort to catch him, the authorities released a 1977 recording of his phone call to the police, hoping that someone might recognize his voice. After several years without a known crime, Raider killed his neighbor, Marine Hedge, on April 27, 1985. Her body was found days later on the side of the road. The following year, he killed Vicki Wurgel in her home. His final known victim, Dolores Davis, was taken from her home on January 19, 1991. Over the next several years, BTK dropped off the map as Raider focused on work and family life. He had left ADT in the late 80s and started working for the Wichita suburb of Park City as a compliance supervisor in 1991. In his new position, Raider was known to be a stickler for the rules. He measured the height of people's lawns and chased stray animals while toting a tranquilizer gun. According to reports, Raider took pleasure in exerting his limited authority over his neighbors and other members of the community. He was also a Boy Scout troop leader and president of his church council. With many news stories making, marking the 30th anniversary of the Otero murders, BTK resurfaced in 2004. Raider sent local media outlets and authorities several letters filled with items related to his crimes, including pictures, a word puzzle, and an online for the BTK story. He left packages with clues, including a computer disk that ultimately led authorities to Raider's church. Investigators also noticed his Jeep on the security tapes of some of the package drop-off areas and cemented their case by obtaining a deep in a sample from Raider's daughter. Raider was arrested on February 25, 2005 and later charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. His neighbors and fellow church members were stunned by the news, unable to believe that the man they knew was a serial killer that had haunted the area for so long. Raider pled guilty to all the charges on June 27, 2005. As part of his plea, he gave the horrifying details of his crimes in court. 
Many observers noted that he described the gruesome events without any sign of remorse or emotion. Because he committed his crimes before the state's 1994 reinstatement of the death penalty, Rader was sent to El Dorado Correctional Facility to serve his 10 life sentences. And that concludes the BTK segment of this podcast. This next story involves a possibly paranormal personal account that happened to me as a child. I was about four years old. It was in the middle of the night. Back then, my dad had a band, and his friends would be in the basement jamming out. I woke up because of the noise. And curious, I got out of bed, walked down the hall, and headed downstairs. I wanted to hang out with my dad and his friends. I thought they were funny and cool. As I was making my way downstairs, I felt something poke my back two or three times. I turned my head to look, and there's nothing there. I continued down the steps, and it repeats two or three taps on the shoulder. I turned my head back again, and there's nothing there. I'm not scared, just confused. I finally joined my father and his friends in a basement. I tell them what happened. I think he dismisses it as me being tired or overly imaginative. No other incidents followed this event. It's something I've thought about for years, and to this day I still have no idea what that was. I googled the history of the house years later when I was a teenager. I didn't find any records on the house involving a death or other creepy, unexplained phenomenon that would plague the house with something. Tonight, I'll be telling one of my personal stories. I have changed the name of the man in here. So here I go. When I was nine, my mom ended up dating this Hispanic man. His name was Jorge. He happened to be illegal. When they first started dating, things were real good. He worked, helped around the house. After a year and a half to two years, things started to change. He was a stoner, which wasn't a big issue. However, it started with that. And when he was out, he would start getting mad and calling me and my brothers names like the N-word in Spanish, idiot and fucking retards. Please excuse my terms on that. It is part of the story. Their relationship for the four next years went downhill. Jorge became more abusive, trying to physically abuse my mother, and she wouldn't have it. He stopped working so much and became more agitated over the years. In about 2008, late 2008, he was riding with a friend and got pulled over. He happened to have a little roach on him. He was arrested and was awaiting to be sent back to Mexico due to his citizenship. That's where I thought this all ended. I couldn't have been more happier. However, this is the end of this story for now. There will be a part two next week.
Thank you. I do, however, have another story tonight, more of a spooky paranormal story that happened to me when I was seven. It was a real old house. It was so old that the furnace looked like an old wood stove that stuck out of the wall. Anyways, this house that we stayed in, we were living there for about five or six months. One night, I was sitting watching The Exorcist with my older brother, and as we're sitting on the couch, I start to hear, like, dog claws in the kitchen on the linoleum. Creeped me out really bad. I got up to go check it out, though. Thought I'd be the little tough one. I didn't see anything. That night, I ended up sleeping in the front room, and again, I heard it. My mom was on the couch sleeping, but it woke her up, too. And we did have a dog, however. He slept in a different part of the house, so there was no way he could have been in there unless he would have maybe broke loose. We got up, checked on him. He was fine. This went on every night, most likely around about 11, 30, 12 o'clock is what I'd guess. I was seven years old, so I can't remember. But I do remember it was around that time every night we would hear the same thing. Dog was always in the right place. This went on maybe for another two months and it really had us creeped out. My brother's friend from middle school came over one day and wouldn't walk in our house. He was all freaking out and saying, I will never go back in this house again. My mom started to question him and ask why, what's wrong with this home? He says it's haunted. She's like, that's extremely weird and explained what was going on to him in detail. And he said, well, I remember when we lived here, which was right before you guys, because we only moved out about six months ago. We moved out because it was haunted. There was a thing of pins that sat in a coffee mug. One night, him and his brother and his two sisters were sitting on the couch watching a movie, and the older brother happens to look up and starts backing up into the couch, freaking out. Sister looks up, and she says, Hey, everyone, look. There was a pin that started spinning. Every one of them we know very well to this day, and they all agree upon this story, that it really happened. There was one pin spinning, though, so the older brother gets up and gets tough, and he decides to stop it. As soon as that happens, one of the other pins starts spinning, and it freaks him out, so he grabs that one. Next you know, everything's good. Nothing's happening. When he lets go and he goes to walk away, both of those pins started spinning all by themselves, there was nothing there. And that freaked them out. They told their mom and decided to move out about two weeks later. Anyways, that concludes the story. That was kind of a untyped written story, kind of off the top of my brain, so I'm sorry if it doesn't sound as good as some of the other ones, but I'm going to pass it over to Vincent for another story from him. My story um, takes place at the uh, the prison 
um, the Hutchinson Correctional Facility to be more precise. Um, I was working 11 to 7 night shift uh, therefore for a long time. There was one night where I had to do outside perimeter at the maximum facility and um, I basically had to walk into the buildings um, outside of the main prison but was still within those walls and into those buildings and make sure they're empty and all the doors are locked and make my checks and make sure that everything was as it should be. There's an old clinic out in that yard that I had to go look into and make sure everything was good there. Um, I had a whole key set key on, on, the, on, a, on a key ring attached to my um, to the utility belt that I had with me. Um, and as I was trying to find the right key to open the door to the old clinic, um, I peer into the window and you can't really see anything because the lights are off, but you can see uh, my shadow uh, peering in as I peer in through the, uh, the door window. I saw my shadow in there. There was also something else in there that I couldn't make out and I wasn't sure what it was at first. And then I discovered there was actually a black shadow mass something in the old clinic. Um, as soon as I saw that, whatever it was, it is an understatement to say that I noped out of there pretty quickly. And I just said, fuck it, I'm not doing the old clinic. And if I had to be written up for it later because I didn't check the old clinic, I was going to take the write-up. I was, I was going to take it. I was going to own up to it, say yes, I didn't check the old clinic because there's a fucking demon in there. And just accept the consequences of me not checking the old clinic. Um, another story I have at the prison is I was working a cell house one night. Um, and evidently this is the same cell house that an inmate um, died in years and years ago um, via suicide. They hung themselves. One night I was doing my checks and in my rounds um, and then toward the back of the cell houses are showers and I had to go around those two to make sure that no one was back there and all the doors were locked. One night I was at the officer station, the little office that's located inside each cell house. And that door was open when I thought I had closed it. And within that door, I saw a pale white man in there. I didn't know what to think of it. Um, I didn't know what to, what to really do. I didn't know whether to call for help or not call for help. But I know I closed that door. And there's no reason why there should be anyone in those showers at this time. This was at like one in the morning. I pretend that it's not there. I look away and I leave the shower door open until breakfast time because I don't want to deal with it. This is also one of those nights where I was by myself and I, I called to make an inquiry as to what I witnessed was normal. That prison is over well over a hundred years old it's bound to have some things in it. The only, the only thing I was told to me was, oh, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. You'll be fine, you'll be okay. You're doing fine. Come chow time for breakfast, before I left the inmates out for, for breakfast, I made sure to close that door, and by the time um, I had done that, that figure was long gone. But I did witness a pale white figure or a man he was all white, no hair, just, just white, white as paper. I saw him in there. I didn't know what to make of it. That concludes my story. Tune in for more later.
that is all we have today. Thank you guys for listening to our stories. Be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks to hear more creepy, unsettling stories. You may submit your stories at ominouswhispers2021 at gmail.com. Again, my name is Vincent, and over there is Christian Haskell. Have a good week and be safe.